Welcome. Welcome, Dwight. Thank you. Great. Let's get going. Uh, so we're in the book of Revelation, and uh, the big idea of Revelation is uh, two words. Jesus wins. Okay? So the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which a lot of people have difficulty understanding or get frustrated about or don't know what it means, and we'll look at some of those reasons in a little bit, um, but the simplicity of Revelation is just that, quite simple, that Jesus does, in fact, win, and this is a, a book of victory that we get to have full access to. And so this morning, if you are a follower of Jesus, man, everything in here is really good news for you. And I know that many of you are students, and you're used to listening to lectures, and rarely are people like, yes, I love that point in organic chemistry. That's amazing. It changes my life, right? Rarely does that happen. I've never been a part of an organic chemistry class. Hopefully, I never will be. And, um, but I imagine that doesn't take place. But in your heart, if you are a follower of Jesus, some of these things should explode with, with great joy and cause you to have such confidence in the one who's writing this to us. So let me, let me start out. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, or that word could be from Jesus Christ as well. So the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, which is us, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so what this book is, it's the book written to his servants, to his followers, not to scholars, not to elites, not to people with too many letters at the end of their name, but to the normal everyday follower of Jesus, that you and I are intended to understand what it is that Jesus is giving to John. But it's difficult for several reasons, and I just want to quickly go through those, and um, I won't have time to get into all of the, the arguments behind them. And by the way, we're choosing to do the book of Revelation in 13 weeks rather than 1,300 weeks because either one, honestly, is an option that there's so much detail in this book that we could, we could hone in sometimes on a word and what that word actually means and how that fits in the context. But I think that if we run with the big idea that Jesus wins and we look at what John sees, which we'll get at in just a minute, we can actually do this in a fairly short amount of time. Also, I want to encourage you to take some time and read through or listen to the book of Revelation. It was meant to be read all at once. The intention of this was not that people like me would stand up over the course of 13 weeks and break down exactly what's going on, but that you and I would get to hear the, the fullness of this, this book. So I would encourage you over, not right now, you get super bored, go ahead, read it. I remember being a kid, being in church, uh, being super bored by what was happening, and I would just read, read the Bible. Uh, I wasn't a Christian at that time, but I would just read the Bible, and that was more interesting to me than what whoever was up there was saying. Um, but it's difficult. This book is difficult for several reasons, and I just want to identify five of them real quick. This is a bit of a longer introduction, because not every week are we going to get into all of these details. So if you forget some of these things, one, I would encourage you to study some of this on your own, but two, you can return back to this podcast and listen to these. There's also a little tiny book. It's about 50 pages of content with, it seems like, 40 pages of opportunity for you to take notes, so that might be saying something, but it's called Jesus Wins, and it goes through a lot of this stuff that we're going to talk about at the beginning so that you can be more equipped on how to read this for yourself. Difficult for at least five reasons. Number one, 
there are multiple genres involved in the book of Revelation. So, number one, it's a letter. Okay? We know what to do with letters, usually. But number two, it's prophetic literature, which is a bit more difficult to understand. And third is one that you and I have probably never been equipped to actually get, and that's apocalyptic literature. And so this book is kind of like if I were to invite you over my house to watch a movie with my wife and I, um, and you said, yeah, I'd love to come, but what, what movie are we watching? Or what genre is it? And I said, oh, no, it's really great. It's going to be a romantic sci-fi documentary. And it's like, what? That's kind of what Revelation feels like. Not the romantic sci-fi documentary, but it has those elements to it as well. Multiple genres make it difficult to understand what's going on. Secondly, this, this piece of scripture is full of Old Testament imagery. So the Bible's really broken down into two big sections. The first section is Old Testament or Old Covenant. The second part is New Testament, New Covenant. And the New Testament starts with the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And then we get snippets over the first hundred years or so of church history and things that were really important to be documented and letters to be written that actually are now the Bible. But it's difficult because it's full of Old Testament imagery and most of us aren't familiar with the, the nuances of some of the Old Testaments. And so it's difficult for us. But Revelation is kind of like an Old Testament mixtape. And I know that falls flat on our modern ears. So it's kind of like an Old Testament playlist, okay? Um, mixtapes used to be a thing. I love those. I'm not super old, but I love mixtapes. Uh, but it has 500-plus quotes or allusions to the Old Testament. And some scholars say there's nothing new in the book of Revelation. There's no new symbols in the book of Revelation. It's just a bringing back of Old Testament imagery to explain what God is still doing. Third thing is that there are symbols everywhere. Rarely are you going to have a nice literal reading of something in the book of Revelation. There are symbols everywhere. Um, colors mean things. Numbers mean things. We'll see that this morning. Creatures mean things. You're like, oh, okay, lion. It's like, no, not a lion. That means this, right? All these symbols mean all these, all these things. There's so much representation in the book of Revelation, which is beautiful, but if you're trying to go at it with a literal understanding of, okay, there are going to be 144,000 people standing at this time, you're going to be deeply frustrated and disappointed because there are more Christians in the small town of Texas than 144,000, right? Symbols everywhere. Fourth, Revelation is not linear. It's not linear. Right? So you're going to come watch a movie, romantic sci-fi documentary that's not linear. And it's just kind of all over the place. And that's what the book of Revelation is. God did not write this and give this to us so that it can scratch our Western A to Z desires. It's this is what is most important for us to, to understand because it's what John saw. So the question that, uh, of Revelation is not what happened next, but rather what did John see next? What did John see next? And it's kind of like if we were to open up these curtains and look out this window and you saw rainbows and creatures with the face of a bull and you saw all this stuff happening and you're like, okay, great. And I say, yeah, let's go over to that window. And we go over to that window and there's like hail and horses that are different colors and destruction. And you're like, oh, I want that side. Let's go out there. I'm like, well, out there's not out there anymore. This is different. And you're like, oh, it hurts my head. I'm like, I know. But that's because we can't think linearly, if that's even a word, about the book of Revelation. Cycles of the same events 
from different angles are happening throughout this book. So the, 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 the sooner that you can embrace this and like let go of the linear control that you want to have over this book, the, the more freedom you, you give to it to actually minister to you. The fifth thing is that, and I think this is actually good news, is that people don't agree on every aspect of the book of Revelation. But the book of Revelation is not intended to be a divisive book. What you won't hear is me saying, hey, the point of the book of Revelation is Jesus wins. And next week, I, I don't know who's preaching here, Trenton maybe. Trenton says, ah, the point of the book is that the beast wins. It's like, you're not going to, we're not going to disagree about that, right? Jesus wins. Um, but I honestly, like full honesty, I don't know where all our pastors sit in all the nuance of the book of Revelation because there's so much freedom in terms of how we understand every aspect of this book. But what I wanted to do is give you the four main approaches that people take between chapter 6 and chapter 18. And you're like, I thought we were in chapter 1. Yes, but I'm trying to set the framework for the book. Um, so we're getting into chapter 6 to 18 already. Um, first, people believe um, the preterist view, it's called. And, and they believe that all the things in chapter 6 to 18 were fulfilled by the fall of the temple in, in Jerusalem, or at least the fall of the Roman Empire. So if you talk to a preterist about the middle part of Revelation, they're like, yeah, that's already done. But then in the same room, you meet a futurist, and the futurists believe that this is all going to be fulfilled with future events. And it's like, okay, two people reading the same text, love Jesus, smart, went to school, maybe even did their PhD, focused on this precise angle, and they disagree. But they both agree that Jesus wins. Third view is the historicist view, which believe that Revelation uh, 6 to 18 are fulfilled chronologically. They're just taking place in linear fashion, and they'll end at the second coming of Jesus. And then you get the fourth view, the idealist view. The idealist view is that there's repeated fulfillment of these events, of these events. So it's kind of like the, the Marvel Universe in a sense, like, yay, good guys, at least we think they're good guys, they win, and it's like the universe is all in its place, and then Thanos comes. Dun, dun, dun. And then we have to get all the Avengers together. We need to do this thing, right? And then we defeat him. But then the multiverse, dun, 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 right? Because we need billions of dollars, dun, 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 right? And so we keep making up new things. The idealist is that, that it's repeated fulfillment. Repeated fulfillment. Same events happen over and over and over. You ever feel like history just repeats itself? That's the idealist view. So later on, too, when we get into Revelation 19 and 20, we'll get into the millennium, and you're like, oh, I know what millennium means, 1,000 years. Maybe, but there are people who believe it doesn't mean 1,000 years, and then people who believe it means a literal 1,000 years. And then you get into rapture and tribulation, all these things that people don't agree on. So our approach as we come to the book of Revelation is, one, we believe that Jesus wins. Good news, right? No debate on that. Secondly, we're going to walk through the text and see what John sees. And if there is a, if there's something that we as humanity created to help better understand this, like the idealist approach or whatever, great, we're going to draw on that. But we're not married to any one of these approaches. It's what G.K. Beale calls the eclectic approach. And that's the approach that we're going to take with the book of Revelation. What's most important in all this is that this text can't mean something to us, it can't mean something to us, that it didn't also mean to the first audience. Okay? Sometimes we like to be, um, we like to think that we are really important. 
and that this book was written to us for 2023. Yes, but it was also written for them. And that's really important for us to, to note. So let's get into Revelation. Revelation was uh, written in uh, probably the year 96 by John the Apostle. There's some debate on that, but not much. Okay, we believe John the Apostle wrote this. And he wrote it from the island of Patmos, which is an island about 15 kilometers off the coast of modern-day Turkey. You might be thinking, I would love to take a vacation and get to an island and be able to write parts of the Bible. Sounds awesome or to write a book, or to take a nap, or something. So John is Airbnb-ing it as he's writing this. No, that's not what's happening. John has been banished and exiled there. So now John is, is on this island, 15 kilometers off the coast of Turkey, as an exile, as a prisoner. And so we have to ask, why? John was probably around 80 years old at this time as well, and so why would you take an, what harm can an 80-year-old pastor do? Why would you stick him out on an island all by himself? Well, for us to answer that question, we probably need to understand more about the Roman, the Roman context. And if you're like, when are you going to actually get into the Bible? It's like, I know. It was so hard for me to actually put together this introduction. I can't wait to get into the Bible. But we're going to keep going a little bit longer. Okay? First century, it was really hard to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Extremely hard. Because to be a Christian means that you believe that Jesus is Lord. Which is like saying Jesus is Caesar. Or to contextualize it for us, it would be saying that Jesus is prime minister. Mr. Harper was not prime minister. Mr. Trudeau was not prime minister. Jesus is a true prime minister. And today, maybe they'd be like, eh, okay, you do you, man. But then, they're like, off with your head. You die. You die. Because Caesar is Lord. The Roman Empire accepted the Jewish people, but not the Christians, because they believed the Christians were cannibals and atheists, because every week or whenever the Christians got together, they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of this Jewish man who died for them, and they can't find any longer. This is how they were viewed by the Roman Empire. And the emperors really tried hard to wipe out Christianity altogether. Uh, Nero, who's been called by very smart historians as a lunatic, uh, in the year 60, if you're a Nero fan, I'm just sorry. Uh, bad team, bad team. Um, but in the year 65, Nero uh, persecuted the church immensely. Uh, there was a great fire in Rome that broke out, and he blamed the Christians for that fire. He had many of them killed. Uh, Nero liked his garden lit up at night, and so in order to light that, he didn't plug into Hydro-Quebec. Rather, he put Christians up there, doused them in something that would cause them to burn a long time, and would light them on fire. And you could walk around Nero's garden, you could take a bath in Nero's massive milk bath um, while Christians were burning around you. Then it got worse. So in year 67, Vespasian, and there's debate on how to say his name, I don't care, I think I said it right, maybe I'm wrong, doesn't matter. But Vespasian came and he said, huh, I want to wipe out the leaders of this movement. So he took out the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and Timothy all at once, just done with them thinking that this is going to rid the world of this Christianity or this, this movement of the way. And then things just got worse because it didn't die down. So in the year 92, there's Emperor Domitian. He was a very insecure man. And he actually put out this, this call that all people who are part of the Roman Empire, that they would worship him as God and king. And so he said to Christians... That's fine. You want to be little Christ? Awesome. You're just going to worship me as your true God and your true king. And John, the apostle John, 
wouldn't offer incense in worship to Caesar, and so they banished him. Now, why would they banish him? Well, supposedly, they tried to kill John several times, and John just wouldn't die. Have you heard about the new, like, cold bath phenomenon? That, like, people are taking cold baths in the morning or cold showers, and it's supposed to raise dopamine levels and help you defeat COVID forever or something like that, right? They put John in a, a boiling, boiling pot of oil, and he's just chilling like a cold bath. Right? So they're like, okay, I guess we'll put the old man out, and the more well-seasoned man, excuse me, out on this island of Patmos, thinking that there's no more impact. I've rid the world of Christianity. Their leaders are all gone. But here's the thing that's so ironic, is that we are reading, <laughs> we're reading what John received when he was in banishment. When they thought, we're going to stop this move of Christianity, Jesus one-ups and gives this vision of what's actually going to happen to the world. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Neither will banishment from any emperor. I will keep my church moving, and I will have a greater reach than anyone thinks possible. You see, Christians were facing a significant persecution, and the book of Revelation is a letter to us from Jesus saying, victory is done. Like, victory is mine. It's all over. It's all done. Uh, when the Allies won in, in World War II, there was decisive actions that caused victory to happen. But victory wasn't yet known. There wasn't a Twitter. There wasn't emails. Right? It took time for victory to actually be realized throughout the rest of the world. And when Jesus rose from the grave, it began victory. And now, slowly, this victory is moving to the ends of the earth. The war is over. And so the book of Revelation is given to us as followers of Jesus so that we would live like it's done while you live in Babylon. That we would live like this is true while we live in Babylon. How many of you live in Babylon? All of us. All of us. You all fail. I won. You're all wrong. No. Yeah, all of us live in Babylon. Babylon, of course, you read in the book of Revelation, you bump into Babylon, and you're like, oh, I don't know what that means. Let me tell you what that means. Babylon is the anti-God society and anti-God systems and structures. That Babylon is a, is a way to say anything ex other than the kingdom of God. That's Babylon. Okay, yes, there was a literal Babylon. There was a tower of Babel. But Babylon is also a spiritual reality. And so you live like Jesus has won as you live in these anti-God places. Not like freaking out, not like sucking your thumb, rocking in a corner and singing kumbaya, hoping that the Lord just comes and rescues you, but rather that you would go out and live like Jesus has actually won. That he's won. War is over. And so the question as we live here is, who will you worship? Who will you worship? Revelation is as important for us today as it was for the first hearers because they, say, they faced the same question as well. And they had a proverbial gun to their head. They were going to lose their head. Who will you worship? Will you bow to Caesar or not? Who will you worship? You see, in our, in our culture, we, we fear persecution, don't we? We fear that, that somehow persecution is going to come upon us and, and cancel us or remove us 
But this isn't a fear known in the book of Revelation. In fact, persecution is expected in the book of Revelation. Not if persecution comes, but when and how. And it's not um, try and figure out how you get away from that. It's who you worship in the middle of that. The real enemy isn't persecution. The real enemy is spiritual complacency. The real enemy is spiritual complacency. And my fear is that that moves in all of us. And at some level it does. But that Jesus becomes this neat little thing that you and him are doing this me and Jesus thing. And it's always an individualized Jesus and I. And it never involves other people. It never involves sacrifice. It never involves risk. Jesus is just there to help you live your best life now. So that you and your precious snowflakiness can be the best snowflake that you possibly can. And that's just not the God of the Bible. That's just not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not how he rolls. The enemy is spiritual complacency. That you just get in this meh thing with Jesus. That when you came to Jesus, you came for what you could get out of him. Because you heard about this place called hell, and you're like, don't want to go there. This place called heaven, that sounds nice. Maybe video games and snacks and that stuff. Great. Jesus will help me get there. And Jesus becomes a means to a different end. That I think that there might be so many Christians that if there was an heaven without Jesus, they'd be okay with it. Because they never imagined that Jesus was a central part of heaven in the first place. Spiritual complacency. That that's where our hearts can get to. And the book of Revelation is saying, wake up. Wake up. Because not only are you missing out on the one that you were made for, but there's others around you living in Babylon who don't know about him. Who need more than just your little me and Jesus walks. Who need for the people of God to live as prophetic witnesses, demonstrating and showing that Babylon doesn't win because the resurrection actually happened. But this is hard, isn't it? Because when Babylon gives us all that we want... When Babylon gives us all that we want, it's so easy to transfer our worship. When Babylon threatens the things that, that are precious to us, our security, our comfort, our approval, our control, when Babylon threatens to take those things away, it's so easy to say, okay, okay, I give in. I give in. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Because I can't imagine living in a kingdom without those things. So, here's Revelation. Now we can get into the Bible. You know, I figured as a gift, a New Year's gift, you all wanted a 22-minute introduction. So you are welcome. Revelation 1, verse 4, says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on Earth. So the first thing that we have to see is that revelation is a gift from God given to us. And it says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, there were more than seven churches in Asia. But we're going to look, we do our all-church gathering in a few weeks on January 29th. We'll look at the message that Jesus gives to the seven churches. But it wasn't just for them. Like, we're going to hear that and be like, ah, dummies, you know, like, you guys should have been better at that or done that better. We've got it all together. It's a message for us as well. That these seven churches in Asia, yes, they're literal churches, but they're also symbolic and representative of the entire church. 
And so don't sit back when you're like, oh, he's talking to the church in Ephesus. He's also speaking to you because there are aspects about our life and our church that can be encouraged from the church in Ephesus and also rebuked from the church of Ephesus, which is a church we'll look at. So seven literal and representative churches. But the thing that he says is grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Remember, first century, to be a Christian means that you could lose your head. This is grace. This book is grace, meaning you don't deserve this. It's divine favor that's being given to you. This is heavenly commentary that you and I wouldn't have figured out on our own unless God gave it to us. So this is a gift. Don't, don't shy away from the book of Revelation. Lean into the book of Revelation. Take it as a gift from God who loves you and enjoy it. Second thing, though, is peace. Peace is a state of spiritual well-being, a consistency, a constant state of spiritual well-being. This is what's being offered through the book of Revelation, grace and peace. So the book of Revelation is not given to scare you. It's not given so that we can write books with charts and dragons and beasts and scare and fear-monger people. That's not why it's given. It's given to us. We don't deserve it. And it's supposed to bring us peace. But how can we be peaceful with this? How can we be thinking about apocalyptic stuff, living in Babylon, and find great peace? Well, because this is from God. This is from God. And we believe in, in one God who exists as three persons, yet is one God. And you're like, what are you talking about? I know. Theologians say this about the Trinity or the triune nature of God, that it's simple enough for a little kid to get, right? S Stella is my six-year-old. I'm like, tell me about the Trinity. She can tell me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. She gets it. But if you think about it for too long, it's, you're going to get a headache. You're going to get frustrated because your mind can't fully wrap itself around one God, three persons, one. So there must be three gods. Mm, wrong. One God. Oh, okay. <laughs> so one person wearing different hats like father, dad, three persons. Oh. So when we get to these places, we can do one of two things. We can be frustrated. I will never worship a God. I will never follow a God that I can't fully wrap my, my little IQ brain around. That's one response. The second response is one of worship, where you say, wow, there's this being that I can't fully grasp and comprehend. And instead of fighting against that, I'm going to, in faith, sit under that reality and, and marvel at him. And so we get to see the Father, Son, and Spirit right away. It says, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. And that's specifically speaking about God the Father. That God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they share the same essence and attributes. But specifically, him who is, was, and is to come is focusing in on the eternalness, the foreverness of this God, the everywhereness of this God, the changelessness of this God. God and the sovereignty, the power to actually get things done of this God, right? You're thinking about what is the Roman Empire going to do to me if I do these things? And then you find out that you're engaging with the sovereign one who truly has the power to do things. This is from him. It says in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And that's the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's like saying, I'm the A to Z, though. I'm not just the beginning and the end. I'm everything in between as well. It's a statement of authority and sovereignty and power. 
who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Why can we have grace and peace? Because the one who exists over everything is saying, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Don't believe everything you see. Don't believe everything that you read. Don't believe all the theories. Don't believe that this is how it actually works out. I'm telling you how it's going to end. The Father. And then we get to the seven spirits who are before his throne. You might say, okay, I've heard of the spirit of God, but now there are seven spirits. Who are these seven spirits? Here we go. First lesson in symbolism. This seven shows the completeness or fullness of the work that the spirit is actually going to complete. It's not that there are seven spirits. There's one spirit. But the seven represents the work that he is going to do. And the work he's going to do is he's going from the throne to empower the witnesses. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a witness of Jesus. You are a witness that shows and tells and declares and demonstrates that Jesus is alive, active, moving, and that he wants to work in your life as well. You're a witness. You're like, no, those are for, that's for the witness club. We don't have a witness club. But um, that's for those people who are really bold or ambitious or extroverted or whatever. No, we're, we're all witnesses, all of us. And the Spirit of God comes upon us to empower us. It's not a New Year's resolution we made. 2023, I'm going to be a witness. Or because I heard this sermon, I'm going to be a witness. That's the desire of the Spirit is to empower you and embolden you and to concentrate you and send you to be a witness and to show and tell and be a signpost that Jesus is real. And that Jesus is everything that everyone is ultimately looking for. Everyone. And this is us. That you have been supernaturally empowered by him to go and share. The spirit of God does not make promises to you that he will make you feel, um, he will make you feel like everything is going to be all right all the time. He doesn't make promises that you are going to be healed of a certain thing. He doesn't make promises that you're going to be super wealthy. But the promise is made that he will empower you in your witness. And that's the thing that most of us don't want to do and don't do. We don't share about who Jesus is because we're afraid of what's going to happen or not sure because we think it's about our words or our articulateness or whatever. But the Spirit is like, just, just try me. Just try me. See if I don't overcome the things that you're struggling with in this. Let me empower your witness. But then we see that it's also from Jesus Christ. From Jesus Christ in verse 5, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So we, we have it from the Father, from the Holy Spirit, and now from the Son, and this would have been incredibly encouraging to a church that was tempted to compromise, a church that was tempted to bow to Caesar and say, okay, I'll have two gods. I'll become a polytheist. We'll have Jesus and Caesar. Jesus Christ instead is a faithful witness who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, that Jesus pursued unto death, this witness. And he says, now the same spirit that led me to that, I'm, I'm putting him in you. I'm giving you that same spirit. And Jesus, as after he died, three days later, we believe that he rose from the dead to be what 
what is seen here, the firstborn of the dead, which means that the new creation has begun. The new creation has begun. Brokenness doesn't win. Death doesn't win. Destruction doesn't win. Jesus wins. And Jesus gets up out of the grave starting this new creation, which means that death, persecution, and Babylon, they don't win. They don't win. That's really good news. That's really good news. That you belong to a better kingdom. You belong to an eternal kingdom. You, you won't fit in necessarily in Babylon. You're so frustrated as a follower of Jesus to try and fit into what's going on, but you can't. It doesn't mean you need to be a weirdo. It doesn't need, mean that you need to pursue strangeness. But you have a new value, meaning, and purpose that Babylon doesn't live for. And rather than living in condemnation and judgment over Babylon, you stupid people, if you just do this, that's not our posture. Our posture is, I was once one of you. Here's who I found. Can I introduce you to him? Can I show you him? Can I show you how he works? Can I show you how he's better than your RRSP? Can I show you how he's better than your marriage? Can I show you how he's better than your kids? Can I show you how he's better than the video game? Can I show you how he's better than a cold bath? Can I show you how he's better than whatever it is that you're pursuing? That's the witness that we're showing that Jesus is better. But to show that Jesus is better, we have to believe it. And to believe it means we have to sit with him in our unbelief as well and say, Jesus, would you please change me to believe this and to live this way? He puts his authority onto us so that we can live as his people. Listen to verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That we're given this so that we would obey. We're given this that we would obey. And not in obedience, like it would be really weird. I, I left um, you know, my kids, my family, part of a different congregation, one church, four congregations, one church. Mind blown to them. Um, West Island, we're, they're part of the West Island. So I say goodbye to the kids as I'm leaving to go preach at a different location. And I, if I said to them, hey, be, be a good boy or girl today. If you are, I'll be your dad. If you're not, I'm calling Quebec. They write the checks anyway, um, and they can have you. Show me your obedience. Show me, and I will love you. That's what so many of us think about Christianity. If we obey, God will love us. But the gospel, the good news, is the opposite. It's that God has already loved us. God has already accepted us. And because you're my family. So here's how I talk to my kids, especially my boys. I say, you are my son, so live this way. You are my son, so live this way. You are a Bernier, so live this way. This is how we live. And it doesn't mean that you're not part of us if you disobey that. It means I'm going to keep calling you back to live this way because this is how we live. And God is saying to his people, obey me because this is what it means to live in my kingdom in the midst of Babylon. Don't just learn. Don't just take classes. Don't just grow in knowledge. Don't get letters at the end of your name. Obey. Obey because you already belong and are already loved. I mean, listen to what is said. To him who loves us, oh my goodness, there's never been anyone in all of history loved more than you are right now. Like, that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. I don't know the things you struggle with, but I know you do. I know that you have a secret life. I know there are things that you don't want anyone to figure out or know about you. 
and you're loved despite all that. He loves you. And he's freed us from our sins by his blood. There are very few people I would die for intentionally. Very few. And yet Jesus died for his enemies. Jesus gave up himself not because of how precious you were on your own, but how precious you are to him. And he dies for his enemies. Don't go back to the Babylon vendors. Don't go back to the Babylon street food, getting your, your snacks and munchies and microdoses from them. You have 100-proof Jesus to drink from. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go anywhere else. You belong to this better kingdom, an eternal one. And the reality is he's coming soon. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. He's coming soon. You say, man, soon is very different than my definition of soon. Uh, we have some South African friends, our dearest friends, and uh, they, they tell their kids, oh, yeah, we'll go right now. So it's like I get up, and they're like, no, not now. I'm like, well, what do you mean by now? They're like, it could be 20 minutes. It could be two hours. It could be later today. I'm like, you should get more precise on your, on your now words. But this idea soon is not that, like, soon, you're going to get a snack soon. It's that I'm in the process of coming. I'm in the process of coming back and returning and this means preparation. This means getting everything ready. But I'm coming. And when I come, Jesus says, every eye will see me. Every eye will see me. Every single person that you know and, and don't know, every person that's ever existed, whether by faith or by force, will bow their knee to Jesus and say, you are Lord. You are Lord. Everyone. But here's where it gets tough in the book of Revelation. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And that's not like the one guy in the book of Mark that pierces him to make sure he's dead. That's all those who were responsible for Jesus being on the cross and who refused to submit to him as Lord. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail or moan on account of him. There's going to be mourning because Babylon... The people of Babylon are going to be so sad that, that what they put their life and energy and time and value into is gone. And rather than saying, oh, Jesus, you are much better than what we were going after, they're going to be furious and angry and wailing and mourning and, and, and furious at him. They're not going to bow their knee like, oh, yes, okay, now I see this. They're going to they're bow their knee by force that I do recognize you as far better than anything else. But there's no hope in that moment of them turning to Jesus as rescuer. That's done. If you're an enemy of Jesus and you see him face to face as an enemy, that's it. Done. This is the tension that exists inside of the book of Revelation. And in the end of the book, we find out that they're cursed forever. So now what's our role? What's our role? And I'm wrapping up with this. There's a tension here at the end of verse 7. After we find out all tribes of the earth will wail, it says, even so, amen. Like, let it, let it be. Let it be. A amen. Amen. Because, not because we want the destruction of people, but because we want Jesus to come back. We want him to come back. 
We want to see him. We want to enjoy him. We want to, to live the lives we're actually made to live in relationship with him and without sin. So what's our role? It's, it's one of praying and asking him, would you, would you come back? Would you return? Would you make all things right? But it's also one of priests to the world. It says he made us, in verse 6, a kingdom priest to his God and Father. That we're priests. Every one of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a priest. You don't have to go buy a neat little collar or order one on Amazon. Don't, don't worry about that. But you're all priests. And here's what priests do. Priests pray. Priests pray for people, especially people who don't yet know Jesus. Do you have people in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you have people that you're praying for? Or are you always praying for traveling mercies to work? I don't even know what those are. It seems like we're focused on, please help so-and-so get better, help them travel safely on that thing, and uh, help make sure that they have food. It's like, all those Western things are going to happen, most likely. But do you, do you pray for your neighbors who don't yet know Jesus? You pray for your coworkers who don't yet know Jesus. And not just pray like, oh, please bless them, Lord, but plead, why don't you rescue them, Jesus? Do you fast for them? I'm going to go without food for a time. And when I get hungry, I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to be reminded of them. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you of them, Jesus. Some of, um, I've gone to India several times to work with church planners there, and, and I ask them, okay, how did you reach your village? And they say, prayer and fasting. I'm like, what do you mean prayer and fasting? They're like, we pray, and when there's a need, we fast for it, and we just say, Jesus, we're not going to eat until you, until you meet this need. And then Jesus moves. It's not like they strong-armed him into it, right? Like, oh, man, you're going to die. It's been 31 days. Like, let me do it. But that's how their whole ministry is, is based. It's on dependence on him. Not dependence on, on our strategy, but on his strategy and begging him to actually do that. That's what priests do. Break your Western mindset of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and all your little comfort, personal relationship with him. You're priests who pray for people. And you don't just pray for them, you plead with them as well. I did a, um, I did a premarital counseling thing with um, some people recently, and they, they aren't Christians, and I'm, I'm telling them about who Jesus is, and I'm pleading with them to meet Jesus. And they're like, I thought this was just the first premarital thing. It's like, no, 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 this is all about Jesus, right? Yeah, we'll talk about marriage later, but more important than marriage is, is Jesus, and I want you to meet him. And I want you to meet him. We plead with people to meet him. And not, in, again, not in weird, strange, like billboard type of ways. But we plead with people. Would, would you please explore who Jesus is? And we do that out of love, not as a Christian project that we use them so that you can show up at church service and say, hey, I, I pled with someone this week. You know, like, check, gold star, boom. It's not that. Because God actually gives you his heart for people and you plead with them to meet him. And then priests sacrifice themselves for other people. Priests lay down their desires. I'm sure you have personal goals like I do. I have personal goals that get me up very early in the morning so that I would accomplish my things. But are all your goals just for you? Or do they involve other people as well, especially people who don't yet know who Jesus is? Because priests sacrifice themselves for other people so that they might know who Jesus is. That's what it means to obey this. You can't listen to the book of Revelation without moving as a witness. It's disobedient. 
it's disobedience. We just need to own that. Everything we are and everything we do comes under the title of servants. Everything. And so I'll wrap up with this. You, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to fear. You have absolutely nothing to fear. And you have nothing to lose. Index funds aren't doing so well right now. It's doing a little bit better. You can lose a lot in the stock market. You can lose a lot in crypto. Your, your house can, can lose its value. Your marriage can go downhill. Relationships cannot be great. There's a lot to, to lose. But what's actually going to last for all of eternity, you, you can't lose. You can't lose him. The Almighty is, is with you. The only one who has all power and strength and glory and sovereignty is with you right now. He's here in our midst, by the way. So if you're like, I struggle to believe this, just ask him. He's here. He wants to minister to you. There's not a lot I can do for you. I can't get into your heart and change things, and you should be very glad about that. But Jesus can. And by his spirit, he can empower you, and he can cause you to be this witness. Because there's many who don't know him. There's many in our, and this bothers me so much, that there's many people that don't know Jesus. This is frustrating to me. This keeps me up at night. This wakes me up in the middle of the night. Uh, it, it is a predominant prayer of mine in the morning is the people who don't yet know Jesus. It's why I keep talking about church planting in our city and like, we're gonna plant 21 locations. It's like, well, can't we be about something else? And it's like, no, we really can't um, because church planting is not like planting a new building somewhere. It's the people of God now being in a new place with new opportunities to reach new people with this never-changing gospel that's been rescuing people for the past 2,000 years. That's why we're on about this. We're not gonna change that. We're going to keep being about the mission of Jesus, which means that you're going to continually feel like, wow, Jesus is more beautiful than I ever thought that he, he was, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm losing out on what I, was, what I had, and that's, and that's a normal Christian experience. The more of Jesus you get, the less of Babylon you're clinging to, and this is a trajectory that Jesus has for you. So how do we respond? A few ways. If you don't know Jesus, oh, would you please meet him this morning? Would you please meet him? And it's not because you're all put together. In fact, Jesus came for those who are really messed up. If you're like, oh, I know that I'm, I'm a rebel. I, I know that um, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And yet, who Jesus is is so attractive. I want him. I want him to forgive me. He will. Ask him. And you'll do that. Meet him. When I became a follower of Jesus 16, 17-ish years ago, I remember it was like someone gave me a new heart, new mind, new desires. And do you know what the first thing I wanted to do was? Like literally, first thing I wanted to do was go back to my fraternity house and tell my fraternity brothers about Jesus. And that wasn't because I sat down and plotted out on a whiteboard like, huh, how am I going to reach everyone, right? It was the spirit who empowers witnesses. First thing on my heart was go tell your fraternity brothers about the one who just hijacked your life. And then two of them became followers over the course of the next few days because that's what the Spirit of God does. Goes after really messed up people like I was, really messed up people like you are. And he brings you into his family. If you're a follower of Jesus, my plea is that you would live as a follower of Jesus by the power of the Spirit, not the power of your resolution, not by the power of your religious abilities, but by the power of him. And that you would say, Spirit, you do whatever you want with my life. I want to obey 
I want to follow. I want to be involved in seeing all nations, tribes, and tongues come to be worshipers of Jesus. And how do we respond? Well, we begin to live as priests in our homes. If you have little kids, man, you'd be a priest in your home. You tell your kids about Jesus. You, you, you live like Jesus lives in your home. Right? You don't live as if he's this fairy tale, fictional person. He's real, legit, active, moving, and he, he has more control and power over your home than you'll ever have. You begin to talk about him that way. You, you're priests in your neighborhood, you're priests with your hobbies, you're priests in your vocation. So we go and we live as priests, praying and pleading and sacrificing so that more people would know him. So I'm going to end with a, a, just this very simple prayer. And th that, that prayer is, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. And I pray that you would pray this with me in your heart. So let me pray. Jesus, we, we ask that you would come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come and revive our hearts that are so prone to spiritual complacency so prone to individualism, so prone to laziness, so prone to making, making you a God who comes alongside us as a bigger God and that you're going to help fulfill our life, kind of like Aladdin with the genie, that you are like our genie. I pray that we would turn from that, that idea of that's who you are and that we would turn to you as a true and living God, that we would receive our place as Witnesses, prophetic witnesses who get to demonstrate and declare and show your greatness. That you administer and care for the things that we put in the way, our fear, our, our goals, our ideals, our, our frustrations, our thoughts of inferiority. That you would replace those with who we are in Christ. And that we would go and we would live as priests wherever we are. So we love you and we need you. We pray that you would awaken the city of Montreal, to see who you really are, Jesus. We pray in your name, amen.